Welcome to another episode of Surgeons Lives. I'm your host, John Monson. Our guest today is Jim Fleshman, who is currently the chair of the Department of Surgery at Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas. Jim was born in New Orleans and spent much of his formative years in Northern Ireland before moving with his family to St. Louis. He spent most of his life in St. Louis, going to medical school there, doing his residency at WashU, and apart from a year in Toronto for a colorectal fellowship, uh, then went on faculty in WashU, where he served as division chief. About 10 years ago, he moved to Dallas. Jim is a big baseball fan and currently is on a mission to go to most, if not all, of the Major League Baseball uh, uh, grounds in the uh, country. A stellar career uh, has seen him rise to the presidency of ASCRS as well as the American Board of Colon and Rectal Surgery and he's a well-known uh, proponent of surgical research holding multiple federal grants over the years. In recent years he's realized that there's perhaps more than one way to skin a cat and perhaps multiple different ways of managing people in terms of mentors and has set himself the task of hopefully improving people's careers by guiding them in terms of their path through life. Uh, I hope you'll enjoy uh, our conversation today. If you do, don't uh, forget to like and subscribe and please send me whatever comments uh, you want in terms of the podcast. Enjoy. So, well, uh, Jim, thanks for taking some time out of your afternoon to join us on uh, um, another episode of Surgeons Lives, which, as you know, has uh, a separate subtitle called Stuff That Matters, um, because whilst it would be um, a, no doubt an enjoyable experience to go through your, your extensive CV line by line, and we will, of course, touch on that um it's um the main purpose is for me to try and um talk to a range of surgeons from um northern hemisphere southern hemisphere around the countries different specialties to show that there's more to the surgeon than just being in the or or the office um there's a life behind it and um which i think sometimes gets lost in um, in what is becoming an increasingly pressurized healthcare system. Um, so what I've asked, and I will ask you to do, is if you would um, start us off um, by giving us a brief um, uh, history of life and times, starting with the words, I was born in. Okay. Well, I was born in New Orleans. Uh, lived there for a year. My parents were in uh, the Baptist Seminary in New Orleans, and then we moved over to Luling, where my dad became a chemical engineer. Uh, and then from there to Shreveport, Louisiana for another five or six years, and then we moved to Northern Ireland. Um, I, uh, I really grew up in Northern Ireland in Bangor. Uh, went to Bangor Grammar School, learned how to play rugby, uh, fell in love with science, uh, decided to become a doctor at that time, and had to decide in 1972 whether to stay and go to Queens Belfast or to come back to uh, the United States. 
ended up moving to St. Louis and went to Washington University in biology, uh, then to medical school at WashU, and then residency at WashU, a year in Toronto as a fellow with Zane and Robin yeah. McLeod, and then back to St. Louis as a, a assistant professor of colorectal surgery with Ira Codner and Bob Fry. And 10 years ago, Linda and I looked at each other as empty nesters sitting in St. Louis um, and said, if we ever find a city where both or two of our kids have landed, we would move to that city. Dallas happens to be that place. My son lives in Raleigh. He has four of our grandkids and Cindy lives in Dallas, has two of our grandkids and Angie lives in Dallas and has the seventh grandkid. And that now kind of sets the stage for what I do for fun, which is follow grandkids. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, that's quite a selection. I, I, I feel humbled having a mere one. <laughs> You've got some catching up to do, but it'll be fun. Exactly. Um, so uh, when you moved to St. Louis um, from from the north of Ireland, Northern Ireland or Northern Ireland, as it's called, um, yep. um, and I'm obviously because you were brought up in the north of Ireland, you you clearly never gave any thought to going to a proper medical school, namely Trinity College in Dublin. Um, that no, was a- I wasn't allowed to cross the border. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, in those days, though, they would have happily taken your foreign student fees, you know. Oh, sure. Oh, I'm sure they would have. <laughs> that yeah. was, as you know, Ireland in those days, that was pre-Celtic Tiger. Um, yes, right. Not, not, not a wealthy country by any manner of means with quite a lot of hardship going on. But when you, uh, you moved to St. Louis because your folks moved back to St. Louis or did you strike out on your own? Well, my my dad got a job in St. Louis uh, working for uh, the railroad company that was there, American Car Foundry. And uh, I got into uh, college and they eventually moved on to Houston to work in the oil industry down here for national lead. And my dad and my mom moved around several times from the time that they left St. Louis. And I stayed in St. Louis got married and you know we we kind of made that home for almost 42 years yeah 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 and um uh, you you know Teresa Debesh um is one of my colleagues here you know she's a Louisiana girl Mm -hmm. um but she suffers near-death experiences if she gets too close to snow um um it's just not something (laughs) it's not good you know she's she's just not capable of tolerating it um at all but you you spent as you say nearly 40 years seeing plenty of cold temperatures and snow which is not bad for a louisiana boy well we um you know we learned to ski we went to colorado quite a bit the year in toronto taught my uh, kids how to ice skate and cross-country ski yes. and actually my youngest daughter learned how to ski in Holiday Hills just north of uh, Toronto so we we uh, we had a good time we enjoyed winter sports 
but it, it wasn't a, as much of a passion as it is for others. Yeah, I've, you know, it's, um, I can ski. I'm not a good skier, um, but I can ski. But having lived in Minnesota for a year and upstate New York for eight years, I remain unconvinced exactly what the purpose of cross-country skiing is. It seems to me a complete waste of time. It's all about exercise. <laughs> That's all it is. It's all about exercise. I mean, you, I could, do that, to, you could do that at home, you know. I, I did. I used to use Nordic track for my exercise. <laughs> exactly. So it was, <laughs> but it was, it was in a it controlled environment. Exactly. So in your, you know, rapid fire run through your um, professional career, there must have been role models and mentors in there somewhere. And, and, you know, who were they and, and, and why were they? Well, it's very interesting. I, I actually got into medicine strictly because of a family friend. Uh, Linda, my wife, uh, knew uh, Colonel uh, Beasley, Charles Beasley, who was a uh, Washington University graduate uh, in 1920, uh, was in the military. He served uh, under Omar Bradley uh, as the head of his uh, forward surgical unit in Italy and Europe. And he came back to be the leader of the central division of the VA. Now, Dr. Uh, Beasley went to our church in St. Louis in Kirkwood and found out that I was interested in medicine and got me a job at the VA, Jefferson Barracks VA, doing research with an endocrine uh, physician uh, medicine endocrine. And uh, I spent three summers in his lab. Uh, I never got a publication out of it, but I learned scientific technique um, and research technique. And then the next person that influenced uh, my career was Dr. Edward Jones, who was from New Zealand. He was a neuroanatomist at Washington University. He uh, was my uh, honors in biology project supervisor. And I ended up working in his lab as well for uh, two years of undergrad and then two years in medical school during the summer uh, and getting several publications on, on um, the development of the neonatal uh, rat. And uh, let me just say it wasn't uh, earth-shattering science or anything like that, but it was it was fun, and I at one time contemplated uh, neuro as a specialty. Wow. Okay. But once you get in, once I got into uh, medical school and I rotated on surgery, I realized I was destined to be a surgeon. And the guy that really impressed me the most during my um, not only during my medical school surgical rotations, but also during my general surgery at WashU was Ira Codner. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ira always joked that you have to be really nice to your medical students because you never know when they might become their your boss. And that actually held out to be true in my, my case. And so having had Ira guide my career, both at the ASCRS, at the Board of Colorectal Surgery, 
in Washington University in an academic setting was, you know, it was a godsend. And I can't thank him enough. It's interesting, um, you know, Ira was concerned about the medical student ending up as his boss. Um, um, my colleague for a number of years when I was in Hull as the chair in Hull was a man called Peter Lee, who ultimately became president of the ACP. And he, he was um, John Gallagher's um, fellow for two years, a man he idolized. Um, and, um, you know, Gallagher was not the easiest of men, shall we say. Um, I, if I was to tell you that um, John Gallagher was a North of Ireland Orangeman, you would know exactly what I mean by that. Absolutely. Um, and I've met, I met John uh, under Ira's guidance. And, so he, uh, um, Peter, the greatest thrill that Peter had in his career, which he will tell you, is that not that he became John Gallagher's um, um, boss, but he became his doctor. Oh, that's cool. And um, it was, you know, nothing sinister or serious, but to him, that was the greatest honor of his career. Um, I'm sure. Yeah. It, was kind of, it was kind of interesting. Um, now, you, I think you said your 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 folks in Louisiana were in the seminary? Yes. They and... were at uh, the Baptist Theological Seminary in, in uh, New Orleans. And I, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you are a man of faith, um, to use a phrase. Um, the reason I ask that or raise it is that, um, uh, you know, you and I spent a number of years in Ireland around the same time. I, I obviously was born and brought up there. And, you know, at that time, Ireland was quite a polarizing place to be. Yes. And people, you know, were fundamentally killing each other on the, on the, on the altar of um, faith beliefs. And, you know, people did one of two things in that scenario. They either, you know, took up arms and joined in, or they turned their uh, turned away. Um, and I, you know, chose the latter. I was, I was in Dublin when the bombs, the IRA bombs, went off just outside where we were sitting in 1974. Wow. And um, so I, I always. You know, I, I, I am not a person of faith. My sister has that covered for me. She's a missionary, so oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so she she sorts that out. But but I, I'm in, uh, I was just interested in what you saw when you were growing up in the north of Ireland at a time which was, you know, the troubles were really fully fledged at that point. They they were indeed. Um, I considered, you know, I, we went to a an Irish Baptist church in Bangor. Uh, I had some really good friends who lived in Hollywood, uh, just out of Belfast, uh, Ian Campbell and Ross Campbell. Uh, and they came to Bangor to go to church. And it was, you know, there were maybe 350 members. Baptist, Baptists are not a large um, religious group in, in Northern Ireland. Uh, there were uh they never there was never any there was never any disparaging word spoken about uh the religion of the people from ireland as opposed to ulster which is where northern ireland is yeah 
what I learned was that this was not a a true religious war. This was a economic war. Yeah, this was that. about oppression, suppression, and lack of funding of the appropriate state um, programs that could have alleviated much of what yeah. was going on. Had no, we sure. had we just dealt with that, there wouldn't have been near the the friction. No, for sure. And, you know, I was struck by at the beginning, you know, probably 10 years earlier than that, when the civil rights marches started, one of the slogans that was used was one man, one vote. Um, and of, of course, that was at a time when unless you were a house owner, you did not have a vote. Right. And, and of course, all the that um, you know the property was all owned by the protestant population and the right. catholic population didn't and you're thinking to yourself wait a minute this is in the united kingdom and yet there's this incredible suppression of a of an of half the society it's hardly surprising that people are on the streets asking for a life you know Yes. And as you say, it was on the, uh, you know, it rode on the coattails of religious differences, but it wasn't really. Um, no, no I, I've, I, I am a, I'm a history buff. I've read a lot about uh, both Northern Ireland and uh, Ireland itself. And the history, uh, it, as far back as you can go, uh, even to the Saxons and the, yeah. uh, um, you know, the the Irish being part of the Viking legend back and forth, uh, it, it it was all based on who got what and who could hold on to what. And I, I don't I don't know that. I don't know that that should ever be related to religion because the origins were not not truly. Uh, about no, it's religion. it's wherever you go in the world, people latch on to different, you know, differences or yes. it's, it's just an easy tag. So there you are starting out fresh faced in um, an enthusiastic and wash you. What was your, um, can you recall what your ambitions were at that time? What did you see yourself being 20 years later? So it's, it's very interesting because, um, you know, I, I, since I am a person of faith and I do believe that God has guided my um, career, uh, I, I got into general surgery thinking I was going to be a small town general surgeon, uh, excuse me, uh, in, in Sullivan, Missouri. And Sullivan, Missouri is 45 minutes outside of uh, St. Louis. My wife grew up in St. Clair, Missouri, which is 35 minutes out of St. Louis. And I had met um, a surgeon there who wrote a book uh, called uh, Working Without a Net. And it was about his life as a general surgeon in a small town, 24 seven, having to get someone to cover for him uh, for two weeks vacation, knowing the entire population of Sullivan um, and being just part of the community. And I thought that hey, would be really cool. And I went to meet him. I, my father-in-law and brother-in-law were developers and were going to 
they actually had bought the, the hospital in the town and they were remodeling it. And they thought, well, this is great because Jim can be the chief of surgery at Sullivan Hospital. <laughs> uh, and during the summers, I was working as a construction uh, supervisor uh, and, and realized that uh, maybe the small town life was not going to be as good as I thought it was. And my wife told me it definitely wasn't going to be as good as I thought it was. So Linda and I decided that we needed to rethink that plan. And I, the influence of the people in my department of surgery in St. Louis was profound because Gordon Philpot, who was our chief of surgery, he was at Washington University, had spent time at the NIH. He had a lab looking at CEA. So even though he's a surgical oncologist, he kind of had something that connected him to colorectal. And at one point they needed uh, someone to go into the lab because they had a log jam above. And they said, well, Fleshman's done research. We'll put him in the lab. And that changed my life. Uh, I found out that the research background I had could immediately be translated into a career in academic surgery. Mm. And it, it, it gave me, you know, I got a, the Monheimer Research Fellowship, paid my salary for two years. I learned scientific method. It gave me insight into what it took to get an R01. Uh, after I graduated and when Phil Pot retired five years later, I inherited his R01 and then used his lab going forward for other things to look at laparoscopy and the impact yeah. of uh, pneumoperitoneum and whatever. The methodology is um, the methodology is a core skill. Yes, and the, can... the you know knowing what a control is. Yeah, uh, knowing what the the idea and it and it's basic science translates right into clinical science. Yeah. Yeah. can't deny that and having a a curious mind is part of what uh, yeah. comes out of that experience yeah. and you know at that time and still today of course washu is an academic powerhouse um uh, across the board with you know you know at various times number one in nih funding etc cetera, etc cetera, but was also part of uh, at that time, um, a Midwestern um, cartel almost of of the colorectal centers um, with um, uh, Mayo and uh, Cleveland. Um, you'll forgive me for saying because Ira used to complain about this dominating the the um, dominating the landscape with Ira in the background saying, what about us? Wait a minute. Well, you know, Ira yeah. was always, Ira always had a chip on his shoulder about the fact that the James the fourth fellows never visited Wash <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Et cetera. And, you know, in those days, the UK of course was dominated by St. Mark's um, and uh, you know, one or two other specific places, but now just like climbing Mount Everest, um, colorectal surgery is done far and wide um, by many people in many centers. Um, um, how, is, how have you observed that over the last couple of decades? 
So, uh, you know, the colorectal surgery was started by uh, Joe Matthews after a career uh, in uh, academic surgery in Kentucky. And, and so the, we, we came from an academic background and then we became a um, clinical non-academic specialty. Um, the clinics uh, built uh, themselves around colorectal surgery, Cleveland, Mayo, Leahy, um, you can think of others, the, uh, the clinic in Ohio and the Ochsner Clinic in New Orleans. And so as that goes, the clinicians that were there were very strong and they were very dedicated to getting their outcomes and following their results and talking about things. And because the ASCRS was some of the uh, first uh, large national meetings to, to kick in, um, even as big as the American College of Surgeons in some, in some aspects, uh, they held a, a place of high regard around the country already. But what was missing was uh, the join of colorectal surgery to an academic mission. Um, and if you look at it, now all of, the, all of the major clinics that had colorectal surgery have become affiliated with mm -hmm. uh, medical schools. Uh, Washington University, uh, Ira watched uh, Harandeb Karian become the first professor of colorectal surgery in the country at University of Illinois. Yeah. But it really still didn't have that academic value that, that we saw in surgical oncology and hepatobiliary and trauma, whatever. And Ira said, wait, so let's start an academic colorectal surgery unit and he went to Sam Wells and after some discussion and some back and forth Sam bought into it um, not that Sam liked colorectal surgeons but he <laughs> saw the value in having it as part of an academic group so Ira started really in my mind the first full-time academic program in colorectal surgery with everyone being a full-time academic employee owned by the medical school. Yeah, and, and, and you and that went forward. Well, you remember also that in, in Heron Abkarian's case, um, you know, it wasn't the medical school that bought into it. I mean, his chair was, his, was the Turi Josephson chair. Yes. Um, yes. Funded by auto suture as it was then. I mean, who cares, who cares who funds it? But the point is, it, it was industry who's, who provided the impetus to do it. Yeah, uh, Leon Hirsch saw what the benefit was. And I yeah. think that was something that a lot of people hadn't in the past. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and so Carrion has influenced us all. Um, he mm -hmm. was really the first chair of a department of surgery who came from a colorectal surgery background. And, and now you look around the country and you see they're everywhere. And I think he certainly remains um, far above any other colorectal surgeon for the store of jokes he has. Oh, um, um, for sure. 
You know, I mean, he's he's definitely in a league of his own in that respect. Absolutely, Um, absolutely. um, So. Pursuing an academic career, um, which, as you as you've described, you know, was was a timely move and appropriate move. But you also rose to and continue to rise to the glittering heights of a political career. Um, so, how did you think about that, or did you think about it? And um, I'm hoping you won't tell me it was all just um, serendipity, um, because. Whilst there's always a degree of that and timely opportunity, etc., um, you know, there has to have been some degree of thoughtfulness or intentionality. So back to Ira, uh, Ira sat me down and said, there are three ways to get to um, being the president of the American Society of Colorectal Surgeons. That's what he said. There are three ways. You can go through the American Board of Colorectal Surgery. You can go through the ASCRS committee work, or you can come at it from a research aspect. Well, I was already in the research aspect, but he actually got me involved with the board first. Uh, Rick Nelson was rewriting all of the exam questions Mm -hmm. that were the type X and the true false and the multi-choice A, B, C, D, E, you know, yeah. DE was no, no better, no better man than Rick to do that. Uh, you know? And so Rick recruited me and I must have rewritten over a thousand questions in about a three year period, <laughs> which got me put on the, ex, on the uh, exam committee of the board when I wasn't even a member of the board. So, and that was how the board of colorectal surgery got going um, within the ASCRS. I realized that there were certain core things that we needed to have done so that we were maintaining a more academic uh, presence. And so that was the CME committee. And Al Thorson and I spent time together on that CME committee trying to fix the self-assessment tests and the CARSAP and whatever. And then the research side of things, um, I can remember sitting in the Hilton Hotel in downtown Chicago uh, with, uh, who was it, Rick Nelson, and, uh, and I'm blocking on his name, I'm sorry, who was the uh, program director for Leahy Clinic when David Schetz was the head. He'd been there for years. He did all their colonoscopy. And John. Collar. Collar. So Mm -hmm. John and Rick and I, and every now and then, Abkarian would show up. And we had Garner uh, from New York and Garnett from New York. And we would look at research projects. And that was the research side of things and Pat Mazir was still in charge of the foundation and there was very little funding available Uh, and so I just said look I'm available and I'd love to do this stuff so you went from there and it just goes I I think I'm definitely going to um, select out that phrase as um one of the one of the great phrases that I think could probably last, which is every now and then a carrion turned up. 
I think that's a, <laughs> I mean, I think that covers a huge amount of things. <laughs> it does. Yeah, he had his finger in it all, for sure. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So uh, do you have, uh, do you have another presidency in you? I don't know. I, I've, I, I was flabbergasted when I ended up getting on the Board of Regents for the college. Um, that had never even crossed my mind. I'd watched Steve do a great job. Mm. He and I had talked about it and I figured it was his turn. And so yeah. he went through and I figured I'd be too old and way gone before it was ever considered. And Well, that, that may of course still be true. You know? Oh, thank <laughs> you. I appreciate that. <laughs> it, but it, it's your career is, it, sure. it is, what you've done in the past makes a difference in when people start considering. No, I think that's, to go forward. I think that's true. And, you know, there's no question, you know, despite me, uh, you know, flippantly saying that, but, you know, there are people who have a whiteboard in their kitchen and have their life mapped out in, you know, very specifically. Um, but I think there are equally people who just go with the flow and um, if they contribute along the way and if they're asked to do something, they do it. I think the one thing that does strike me is that, um, you know, the one piece of advice I give to people is that if you're asked to do something, then deliver on it. Um, right. Because oh, if yeah. you don't deliver on it, um, you know, you'll be asked three or four or five times, but eventually you won't be asked. Um, well, that's, that's my talk with my junior faculty. Um, you know, Matt Much is the president of the Society of Colorectal Surgery. Uh, I, I sat him down and I said, if you take my job in St. Louis as the chair or the chief of colorectal, I expect you to be the president of the society before you're done. Yeah. Simply because here's the background, here's what you have to do, here's the plan yeah. you need to follow. You show up, you produce, you contribute, and it becomes obvious. So what uh, what advice would you give to a young Jim Fleshman, the young Jim Fleshman, not a young Jim Fleshman, but the young one, and say, you know, you might want to consider doing this a little differently? Well, uh, I might have spent more time with the research side of things had I known now that the research is actually having a clinical in, impact uh, beyond uh, just evaluating new technology. Uh, maybe I could have done more with the genetic side of things. I just never realized that that was going to be as important as it is now. Uh, yeah, it's interesting you say that. Um... I, in one of my interviews, I was talking to a surgeon who said that, you know, surgery is fighting quite a rear guard action against <laughs> medical oncology, for example, where there is a, a, an increasing belief that surgery is, um, will shortly be no longer required. Right. Um, and um, whether that's true or not, or in whatever time frame it may or may not be true to an extent, there's no question that 
what an old buddy of mine used to refer to as the DNA navigators are gaining strength and 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 for good reason and and it's a good thing. Well, it, there's um, I don't regret I don't I regret very little of my career. Let's put it that way. Uh, that is a the genetics part of of uh, of colorectal surgery was blown wide open when they discovered you know chromosome five and that and fap showed apc yep. gene showed up and vogelstein and uh Fearon and you know we yeah i got to know all those guys I, I met them we talked about things and they were strictly geneticists yeah. or molecular biologists and when we started talking about the clinical side of things they, they didn't know where things were. And so I was always much more interested in the clinical side. And I didn't think that I would actually need to know everything that they know. Now I wish I did. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, when the, the genetics that I got at Washington University during my medical school was Mendelian. Yeah. You know, the green and white pea, the spotted mouse, well, I can I can tell you that um, uh, when I was in medical school in in Trinity College, um, the entire immunology course was two afternoons. Right. Yeah. Uh, oh, know, absolutely. And that you know that was pre um, discovery of monoclonal antibodies. Right. Um, so you know there really was no immunology, etc. Right. Um, yeah. So we we had a lot of stuff on vir virology because our uh, our division at WashU was was heavily involved in figuring out where things were inserting into into uh, disease, and you know that was all they knew. So yeah. our immunology was a very short session as well. So I was I, I chatted um, with Neil Hyman recently um, on this um, podcast uh, YouTube. And um, he was describing to me how he feels that the challenges of pursuing a career in surgery for the young graduating surgeon now are, are, are really quite real and tough. Um, and and he, he, made an, he made a couple of important comments. One is that, you know, he tells these younger people um, that the world is a better place because of their existence um, by, by a large margin. But he feels a need to help them because the pressure on them is, is much worse than when he or I or you began our career. Um, are you pessimistic, optimistic for the young surgeon starting? I think I think they still have a an opportunity for a great career. I think our residency program, we train nine chief residents a year. Uh, they've all, they've switched from 10 years ago. We had very few who went into general surgery last year. When I first got here 10 years ago, every one of our nine went into general surgery. So now they're finding fellowships and finding yeah. niches of where to work. And there's still a lot to do. I, 
I am not pessimistic about a career in general surgery, but it will not be the same yeah. as it was when you and I started. And it will not be the same 10 years from now uh, when these guys are in the middle of their career. So no, for sure, I, they have to understand their role. Uh, I think a lot of them are actually um, better at saying no and being overcommitted than I, I ever was. And I think they can have a, a better life sooner yeah. than you and I had. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we were gone majority of the time and we made, we had to focus to, on making time for our family, spending time with our, our wife and kids. And, and, and there was always a tug uh, pull. Now I think they've got a priority of this is a life I want to live my life and maybe they're not so worried about ending up as president of the society maybe they're more interested in doing a good thing for people and their family so no I I'm think that's them- right I mean you know I think it was the very ex- you know my personal view is that it was the very exceptional person 25 years ago that had those thoughts yeah. Um, I mean, they were there, um, but they were very exceptional. You know, our blind ambition, if you like, whatever you want to call it, um, was commoner, number one. Number two, I, I think having a, the conversation that you and I are having now w- would never have happened 25 years ago. Oh, no. Because it would have been perceived as a weakness, a sign of weakness to even discuss Things such as, you know, stress and burnout and, you know, apart from mentioning a golf game every now and then it never, and I don't think any of that's a, I think it's, it's better that those conversations are, are had now. And there's no question that the millennial generation, whatever you want to call it, um, I would say have a, have a better approach to life than we did. Um, and it comes to different people at different ages, doesn't it? You know? Yes. Um, I mean, I, it- I asked my wife, uh, Linda, the other day, if I was present for my kids. Um, And she said, yes, but they also understood that you couldn't be at everything. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and so there were different expectations back then. And now I think uh, people are, are feeling free to say, you know, this is where my commitment ends and I will do the very best I can for my patients, but I have someone else who can back me up and I'm not going to hold on to everything. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. You say, I mean, it, I, last year, as, as you may know, I, I, I took a trip across the country in a, in an ancient Jag with my son, it was his 40th birthday and um, that year or last year. And, um, you know, during our road trip, I, I had that same conversation with him. And um, because my wife would quite correctly say the answer to your two questions is that, no, you were not there. Um, and um, uh, to a degree, I think the second answer would be the same. But I asked him that and he said, no, uh, but, you know, don't worry about it because it it's the way it was then. And you know, we didn't get damaged as a consequence of it. We understood. Um, and, um, 
you know, it's it, it's just the reality. And I, but I do think it's better that the world is has improved in that respect. Well, my son um, was a I guess he was a freshman in college uh, at WashU, and he had come home at Christmas, and and we were talking, and I said, "So have you decided on on what your path is going to be through the through the university?" And he said, I'm going to do business because I've watched you spend all this time. If I do that and I do it in business, I will be able to retire at the age of 40. <laughs> and I, I said, oh, thanks. <laughs> You've really hurt me. But you know what? He's 45 and he's done what he wants to do. And he is now part of an equity partnership and really doesn't have to work any more than he really wants to. And uh, that's, you know, you make your choice. Well, he'll, he'll need to work um, in order to keep you in the style to which you're accustomed. You know? I, I agree. Absolutely. You know? I, will I, mean, be, I will be relying on that for sure. So um, when did um, and, and has um, retirement come into your mind? And, and if it has, thoughts of what are those thoughts and and how do you uh, how is that thinking going are you going to be um you know continuing until you're in your mid 80s are you going to do a rob madoff and um say i'm done here i'm going to listen to the opera in brooklyn um what's what's your spin on that so uh i was uh 55 years old in St. Louis. I was still the chief of colorectal WashU. I had started a new uh, program, an extension of our program at a smaller hospital mm -hmm. called Barnes West County. Mm -hmm. uh, had 100 beds and 10 operating rooms, and I was really the surgeon that was keeping it full. And um, my chief of general surgery, Will Chapman, came and mm -hmm. talked to me and said, uh, I think you're burning out. And I went, no, I'm not. And he goes, yes, you are. And that was when I was thinking about retiring because I would come home telling Linda, I'm not working past 60. I, I've i got to, you know, I've, I want to retire at 60. And she said, no, you're not retiring at 60 because I didn't marry you to entertain you. You're going to keep working somewhere. So find something to do. I don't care if you keep doing what you're doing now, but you're going to find something to do. So fast forward 10 years later, I'm in Dallas and I'm not operating as much as I was, but I'm still contributing at a level uh, as a chair of a department and on this board, that board. And I enjoy doing that. And I, I haven't thought about retiring since I fixed the burnout issue. And the fixing the burnout issue was realizing that you need something else and you need partners and you don't have to do it all. And you can be happy at doing something other than standing in an operating room 10 days, 10 yeah, hours a day. Yeah. So um, I will probably work till I'm past 75. I'm 69 this summer. I will be 69. Uh, I have a feeling I may work up closer to 80, um, just doing something 
because I enjoy it so much. Doesn't mean that I won't take days off in the middle of the week to go play golf, but I will definitely have something that I'm proud of that I'm doing till then. Is there, do you have a bucket list? Um, and if so, well, what's there? We like to, we like to travel. Um, I'm a, we, we love Europe. Uh, we haven't done much of the uh, scenery uh, sites in the United States. We've been to all the major cities, but I'm also a baseball fan. So mm -hmm. my bucket list is going to as many ballparks in the States as I can get. How many are you? Uh, probably 30 right now. So been to a bunch, you know, yeah. you go to a, you go to a meeting and there's a ballpark, you go to the ballpark and, yeah, that's kind of how to do it. And then, you know, when your grandkids enter the equation, it changes your priorities. And so, okay, now it's no longer that I have to get to all the ballparks. It's just that I have to see my grandkids more multiple times a year to make sure I keep up with them. Uh, and and indeed, bring them to the ballparks. Absolutely. Yes, that's. Yeah, exactly. that's something that's very very important so so how would you like to be remembered and and how do you think you will be remembered wow um you know i've got a a shelf full of chapters that i've written a couple of books on it and i've got a, a cv that's too thick um that's not how i want to be remembered i want to be remembered as somebody that helped a lot of people get to where they want to be in their career. And I spend a lot of time talking to young surgeons, medical students, residents about leadership and finding your, your, your goals and learning that interacting with people is going to be much more important than whether you can tie a knot in three seconds or two seconds. I mean, it, things that I never really thought about when I was a kid. And I wish I had known those when I was a kid. And I wish I had known my communication style when I was a kid, because that would have impacted the way I had dealt with people. Because I thought everybody thought the same way I did. Yeah. So now I spend time figuring out what they're, where they're coming from so that I can relate to them in a way that makes them feel good. Um, I got to tell you that, didn't cross my mind before the age of 55 yeah um yeah. so no, for sure i mean there's no question that um if you want to call it wisdom but whatever you call it wisdom does come with age and it yeah. takes some time and you know I, I i've every surgeon has intermittently stumbled across people that have other world hand skills um that you just spot them immediately they have a gift um but they're often not the most successful um individuals because um and the the corollary of that is that some of the more successful people were not necessarily the most naturally gifted um surgeons but the package was what went together um you know, in terms of the passion, the skills. I mean, the, you know, the, the unicorn triple or quadruple threat is is exactly that. It's a unicorn. You know, not everybody is brilliant at everything, 
but um you know it's the six inches between your ears that um really makes the difference i think um for a lot of people you know i i just recently read uh three books written by a neurosurgeon named henry marsh you probably oh, yeah. have heard of him yeah he starts out and it's it's a very narcissistic yeah. book. Uh, it's about everything he had done and then it's about uh-oh I uh, found out something that I need to I have to take care of myself I'm not immortal and I I am human and then the last part of it is paying back some of the stuff that you know he had left a, a a few people in his wake, so to speak. And I think as he matured, he he went through some realization that that uh, he had missed some opportunities. Uh, he had he had tried to instill um, excellence in everyone he met, but he didn't really instill uh, himself and and help them achieve what they wanted. In, in a way that they could look back on him fondly. Yeah, no. I, hope, I hope to be able to do that in the next, some more in the next 10 years and would hope that uh, I am less thinking less about myself and much more about the people that I'm working with uh, and I consider it working for them. I think, you know, Henry Marsh, um, you know, became an acclaimed author, I think, with his um, late in life experiences um, right. that informed him. And, you know, one of my recently published conversations was with a, a very old friend of mine, as it not very old, but I've known him for many years, um, George Fielding, who's a legendary bariatric surgeon originally from Australia, but now in New York. And and, you know, in the last three to four years, George has had um, a couple of stents put in, a pulmonary embolus. He had COVID three times and he got multiple myeloma. Um, and, you know, his emphasis on his life is in enjoying every day and being good to people and valuing his friends and family and doing what he wants to do and not focusing on hate at all. Yeah. Um, so I think it's very interesting. So in the last uh, minute or so, Jim, um, I get to ask you a series of, uh, of quick questions okay. that uh, you uh, do not have any time to think about the answers uh, uh, for. Um, there are no correct answers to these other than the fact that I know what the correct answers are. Um, <laughs> So um, we'll have okay. to, we'll go. Uh, I I already know the first answer, but I'll ask you anyway. So baseball or football? Baseball. Coke or Pepsi? Coke. PC or Mac? PC. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Beer or wine? Wine. Home or away? Home. Beatles or Stones? Beatles. <laughs> I think you did okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's Terry Hicks' influence. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, listen, I want to thank you, Jim, um, really sincerely for spending some time. I've, I've um, 
I valued our uh, friendship over many years and continue to do so. I hope that uh, the millions who watch this podcast um, um, will find your thoughts and wisdom very uh, valuable. I'm sure they will. Um, I appreciate you taking the time and, and, and thank you for doing what you do and keep on doing what you do. Well, thank you, John. It's been a pleasure and uh, my feelings are exactly the same way back at you. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Talk to you later.